This is God's Word. Let's look to Him in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we bless You and thank You for this Word. May it instruct our hearts, teach and mold our hearts. Help us to think Your thoughts after You and help us, we pray, to love as You love. So, honor Yourself and help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In a little churchyard in Olney in Buckinghamshire, there are these words written on a gravestone describing a man as an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, who was, by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel uh, or the faith he had long labored to destroy. Now some of you immediately recognize that's the gravestone of the great John Newton. Once a slave trader, uh, by God's grace, a Christian, a man whose influence on 18th century England was profound, uh, not least because some of you know that he was in a position of pastoral care over William Wilberforce, who was the British politician who spearheaded the abolition of the slave trade uh, in the kingdom. He was, uh, that is, Newton. He was actually best known in his own day for his letters, which he eventually, having written them, published, including, believe it or not, a series of letters in book form, a thing which was unusual for a minister to do, of love letters he wrote to his wife, Polly. Uh, By all accounts, uh, Polly was a rather plain-looking woman, but to read uh, Newton's letters about her, you would think that she was one of the world's greatest beauties ever. And so passionate were his love letters to her that one of his friends, Richard Cecil, in writing a review about them, said that Mr. Newton has put us all at a disadvantage who are husbands, uh, because now all wives who read his love letters to his wife, all wives will be demanding the same of their husbands. At least, you can, you can get his letters, by the way. I commend not just those, but his pastoral letters to people in difficult situations, tremendous works. Only some of us know him today, perhaps, as uh, a letter writer. Few of us really know him as a preacher Uh, We best know him as a hymn writer, uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, a kind of autobiographical hymn. There's a hymn that we rarely sing, uh, but that's one of the greatest hymns about the church ever penned, uh, and it's glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion City of our God. Some of you know those those words, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Some of you know those phrases. Uh, now you know where he got the idea for that hymn. He got it from verse 3 here. Verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, why did, why did Newton take Psalm 87, which is a more obscure psalm, there are others Uh, He could have picked to write a psalm about the church on. Why this one? Perhaps, it's just a suggestion, perhaps he felt some kinship with the sons of Korah who penned these words. Why do I say that? 
Korah, if you remember your Old Testament, particularly the book of Numbers, Korah is a name identified with one of the most terrible rebellions by God's people. Korah, the father of that tribe or clan or family, had rebelled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and he faced a a rather humiliating and terrible judgment. But the book of Numbers goes out of its way to tell you that the sons of Korah did not share in the judgment of their father. And as you read through the Old Testament, you discover that the sons of Korah became part of the public worship of God. In fact, they became uh, part of the choristers. They perhaps sang in the choir. They penned uh, musical uh, on, for, for instrumentation. They, they penned words to be sung. There's some dozen or more psalms, perhaps out of their gratitude to the Lord for sparing them amidst such family evil that they did uh, they did serve the Lord that way and maybe Newton at following after his own experience identifying with their experience of saving grace in the midst of great evil thought of himself as a kind of son of Korah or even probably more likely like a Korah Himself, an infidel, a rebel, a man by his own admission who sought to destroy the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, maybe uh, Newton could say, God opened my eyes to my filth. God showed me his grace in Jesus. And now because of his love, I belong to the family of God. So glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of God, the people of God, loved by God. Well, that's what this psalm is about. It's about those people loved by God. It breaks into three parts. Uh, There's a musical, we think most likely a musical notation, the word selah, uh, the the little Hebrew word there, um, probably some kind of perhaps either interlude between stanzas of a song or, or maybe a musical notation uh, calling forth a crescendo or some kind of uh, changing of key as the song elevates as it goes. But whatever the case, the song neatly falls apart into three portions. And let's think about those things together as it teaches us the Lord's love for his people. And I want to highlight three things it shows us in verses 1 to 3. It shows us that love is a focused love. And then in verses 4 to 6, that love is an inclusive love. And at verse 7, it is a satisfying love. Let's start with the first place, verses 1 to 3. The Lord's love for his people is a focused love. Notice the language of verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. It says he not only loves one thing more than he loves the other, he loves one one thing more than all the others. His love is focused on this one thing. What what does it mean here by loving the gates of Zion? Well, it's poetry, of course. It it doesn't mean that uh, he loves the gates themselves or that he's some kind of preference for wood gates over stone gates or, you know, swinging gates over drawbridges. Uh, The gate stands for the city itself. So verse 3, O city of God. 
Uh, and Zion, as you may remember, is Jerusalem. It's another name for it. It's a, a place, this one place I love, he says, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, of the people of God. This one city versus all the residences scattered around the nation. Zion is, after all, where God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people, where God as king ruled over and protected his people, where his law governed his people, and where his priests offered sacrifices for the salvation of his people. And it's the Old Testament way of speaking of God's community, which in our day we call the church. Some people wrongly imagine that, uh, well, Israel is Israel and the church is church and never the two shall meet. But the New Testament actually says that Christians have come to Mount Zion. You remember when we studied Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you, speaking of Christians, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So loving the city of Zion here means loving the people of God. The Old Testament saints, they they loved the earthly Jerusalem as a symbol of the greater glories they knew were coming in the new Jerusalem yet to come. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says that Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, the better country, the, 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 uh, the new Jerusalem, Hebrews 11. So Hebrews is saying, you as Christians, you have come to, you have come to Mount Zion. And so the, the focus is the people, none of us are in Mount Zion physically, The focus is the people and not so much the place. The people are the focus of his love. It's it's like, I think, like a man or a woman who, uh, coming home after a long business trip away, they fly into XNA, they're happy to see the the green rolling hills of of northwest Arkansas as as they are, are coming into their neighborhood, they, their pulse begins to race a little bit as they pull up into the driveway and, and they see that the, the lawn is green and the flowers they planted are blooming and the doors haven't fallen off their hinges. And these are all good things. But what they really want to do is push through that door, through that gate, right? And do what? wrap up their spouse in their arms and smother their kids with hugs and kisses because it's the people inside the place that is the object of their greatest affection. And so it is with the Lord. He is laser focused on His people. And if the focus of the Lord's love is on His people, then let me ask you, Do you know that you are loved by God? And are you secure in His love? Do you know that you are? This passage says that you are. The city He founded, verse 1, is... It's not a city we founded. He built it. We didn't build it. His love established it. Not ours. He secures it. We don't. And God is focused 
He has focused his love on his people because he chooses to love these people. Not because we're lovely, for we are in ourselves rather unlovely. Our status as the people of God isn't because of our love for God. Our status as the people of God is because of his love for us. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God made this abundantly clear, verses 6 and 7, to the Israelites of old when he, to paraphrase, said, Listen, you didn't provoke my love by being lovable. You didn't provoke my love by being numerous. You didn't provoke my love by being righteous. You weren't righteous. You weren't numerous. You were small. You were tiny. You were obscure. You were nothing. I loved you. Why? Because I loved you. And I was being faithful to my promise to love you. And until you and I have our security in that kind of divine love, we will not feel secure in his love. If our security is in what we've done for him, we'll never rest secure because we're fickle. We change. We wake up in the morning and one day we're hot and one day we're cold. We promise things and we don't follow through. We have great intentions and we never carry them out. We mean to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but not one of us has done that every moment of our lives. Our security is not in our love, but in His. This is a people He founded, He established, He makes secure. This is where you find your security in being loved like this. Do you know this love? And if you do, let me ask you this. Do you then love as he loves? Do you love his church? He loves his church. If he delights in her, do we? I get why sometimes we don't. The people of God can be very frustrating. It can be hard to see. How anyone could speak glorious things of her, O city of God, right? Until you remember, I mean, we stumble all over each other. We trip on one another's toes, innocently or not so innocently, unintentionally or with malice aforethought. We're not all easy to get along with. Until you remember, I think, that the one who has most hurt is the Lord himself. The one who has hurt the church worse is the church itself. For we, his creatures, we rejected him. We, the clay, said no to the potter. We, the created children of God said no to the creative father and we put him to death when he came like us it was our sins for which he died glorious things can be spoken of the people of God O city of God but it's because of what the Lord has done for her and what the Lord has promised to her and what the Lord makes of her Listen, it is always going to be easier then for you and I to love Jesus than to love the people of Jesus. He's perfect and we're not. 
But you can't love Jesus and not love his people. Because if Jesus, if the love of Jesus has come into your heart, because he first loved you and because he sent his spirit into you and he lives in you, he is loving in you and he is teaching your heart to love what he loves. Let our hearts then be for the church. Let our prayers then be for its well-being. Let our time and our resources be committed to building her. Not the church as an abstract reality or entity, but the church is a real community of real, frail, and imperfect people bound together who, yes, hurt one another, disappoint one another, disagree with one another, and let one another down, but a people who at the same time forgive one another, bear with one another, and keep on loving one another as Jesus does us. I've been a friend who taught a whole generation of college campus ministers If Jesus loved the church enough to die for her, you can love the church enough to be patient with her. So let the focus then of God's love for his people set your priority of love. That's the first thing I want you to see. The focus of his love. The second is, in verses 4 to 6, I want you to see that his love for his people is an inclusive love. Notice the language of verses 4 and 5. Who's included? We'll get to who's included and, and what are they included for. Who's included? Verses 4 and 5. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Along with verse 5, Zion. Not just Israel then, but also Israel. But also, not just Israel and the children of Israel, but Rahab and Babylon and these other nations. And this is God's voice speaking here. Uh, These are the ones who know me, he says. And I know where they come from, he says. These are, what, Gentile nations, right? You don't have to be Jewish then to belong to this city of God, right? Under the love of God. Uh, There are five nations mentioned. Uh, Rahab. Rahab stands for, or it's a nickname for, Egypt, which was to the south. Um, it's an Old Testament nickname from, uh, from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7. Uh, Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Whatever that means, and I don't know today what that means, uh, God gave the, the Egyptians a nickname Rahab, And that word means proud or ferocity. She was, as you remember, the enslaver of Israel and the cruel tyrant who sought to mistreat and destroy the people of God. And then there's Babylon mentioned here, the great power to the east, possibly the worldliest of cities, uh, the destructive conqueror of Judah who exiled having besieged Jerusalem and exiled her people. You remember Nebuchadnezzar is the famous king of Babylon. Then Philistia, this is a nation much closer to the west along the coast. 
they were a constant thorn in the flesh of Israel. They hated Israel and were always annoying her, troubling her. Then there's Tyre here, a powerful city-state to the north, rich, a place of commercial enterprise, known for its covetousness. And then Cush. Cush is another name for Ethiopia or that region of Ethiopia and Sudan near the Nile that was poverty-stricken and far away. And Cush is often used in the Old Testament really to describe a nation that's just a long way away, a distant nation. In other words, if you plot these nations on a map, you've, you've got nations that are south and east and west and north and far off. In other words, you've got people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, God says, who belong to me. We might say Canadians and Mexicans, Iranians and North Koreans. And no offense to my brother from Iran by lumping that nation in with North Korea. And no offense to the North Koreans. But you pick the American enemies, the troublesome nations we think that are the problem with the world. And God says, they've got nothing on the people who persecuted my people. And I will include them too. See, these aren't just Gentile nations. These are the traditional enemies of the people of God, he's describing. And he says, the gate is open and the door of my grace is available to these two so that no past oppression, Egypt, no future destruction, Babylon, no current animosity, Philistia, no worldly preoccupation, Tyre, no geographical remoteness, Cush can keep the Lord from bringing them to himself and into his family. He says, even my worst enemies will belong to me and my old foes will become my new friends, as another put it. And such were some of you. So don't write anybody off. Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, we who were enemies were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now if God reconciles his enemies and makes them his friends and includes them in his kingdom and his family, what then is our heart to our enemies? Do we long to see them become a member of the household? Do we embrace them as freely and readily as God himself embraces his own enemies. This, is, this passage is an Old Testament version of Matthew 28, the great, uh, great command, the, the great commission, the missionary calling of the church to take the gospel to God's enemies. Uh, you, you, some of you know I went to the General Assembly meeting, the national meeting of the Presbyterian Church in America this year, as I usually go, uh, try to go every year went in June. I got to hear Dr. Joel Kim, who's the, now the new president of Westminster Theological Seminary in California. Uh, and he was, at the, at the time, it was overlapping nearly with the meeting of the president of the United States with the leader of North Korea. And he was delighting in uh, and hoping in the outcome of that meeting. Why? Because Dr. Kim came here 
to the United States from South Korea as a nine-year-old when his parents moved here, and he longs for uh, the people of North Korea. He was describing something of their history, of which I, I knew nothing. You know that the capital, Pyongyang, uh, the capital is also the largest city in North Korea. Did you know that in the early 1900s, Pyongyang was known as the Jerusalem of Asia? The first Presbyterian seminary in Asia was in Pyongyang. It was the home of that first seminary, which is part of the reason why the Presbyterian church in South Korea today is the largest denomination in South Korea with over 3 million members and 13,000 churches. And by the way, the Presbyterians there are more like the PCA Presbyterians than any other kind of Presbyterians that are out there. Good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching people. Dr. Kim said that old Presbyterian seminary in Pyongyang has been turned into by the communists a museum for communism. His hopes are to see it restored and more particularly to see the North Korean people freed to follow Jesus without fear of death. Because God will have communists and atheists and dictators and prison camp guards and persecutors of the church as part of his family by grace. Do you see then why Jesus is against you, as Les Nusa puts it, my friend, minister, now just left RUF to become the pastor in Oxford, Mississippi. Do you see why Jesus is against you if you refuse to accept his new flock as your family? If you shun the annoying people in your church, what does that say about what you believe about how you got here? Don't you know we're all here by grace as rather unlovely people and for many of us kind of unlikable people. But the Lord has kindly made us part of his family. Now that's who. What are we here for? What does he include them in? In verses 4 to 6, let me just highlight three things. First, to know him. To know him. Verse 4, among those who know me. He says, and this is a great picture of what salvation is. Jeremiah put it this way, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the rich man boast of his riches or the strong man boast of his strength. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Knowing the Lord is the most important thing. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. This is what God wants. This is why God brings us in. It's to know him, to be known by him. And they do know him, he says, and they have become his people. This is the second thing. They belong. He brought them in to belong to him. Notice that language time and again here, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. Um, this one was born here, it says, and he, he, he records, verse 5, as he registers the peoples, or verse 6, this one was born here. He's, he's taking down their name. He's enrolling them in his registry. He's keeping track of them all. Not one of them is missing. Their names are written in the Lamb's 
book of life and will not be blotted out. And so he gives them status in his, in his citizenship. He gives them status as sons and daughters in his household. Do you see then how he brings together enemies and reconciles them to each other as he reconciles them to himself? And he makes of, of the many one new community. I'm, I'm, I'm always startled by this missionary story. Some of you have heard me tell it before. On the Lord's Day, a group of missionaries gathered with some of the new believers in New Guinea to uh, worship God and observe the Lord's Supper. And after one young man sat down, a missionary recognized that a sudden tremor passed through the body of that young man that indicated he was under some great nervous strain. And then in a moment, all was quiet again. And so the missionary leaned over and whispered, what was it that troubled you? Ah, he said, but the man who just came in killed and ate the body of my father. And now he has come to remember the Lord with us. And at first I didn't know whether I could endure it. But it is all right now. He is washed in the same precious blood. And so they had communion together. It's a marvelous thing. The work of the Holy Spirit bringing enemies together at a table around Jesus. Reconciling us. You can't reject those the Lord has received. You you must embrace all whom the Lord has embraced. He says not only that they will know Him and belong to Him, but they will be born here. Did you hear that expression time and again? Verse end of verse 6, this one was born here, it will be said of them. Not just those born in Zion, but those born in Egypt and Ethiopia. What's that getting at? I don't think literally born here like I could say I was born in Pennsylvania. But no, spiritually born here. Birthed here into new life. What, what the New Testament would describe more explicitly as being born anew, born again, born from above, having the life of God awakened, uh, brought into you so that you are awakened into spiritual life so that the church is a maternity hospital where people are coming to life. Some of us don't know when that happened for us, but that's okay. You you wouldn't even know what your birthday was unless somebody who was present then told you what your birthday was. The fact that you don't know the day or the hour of your spiritual birth shouldn't really trouble you either. If there's life in you, that's the important thing. We know we're alive whenever it was that we were born into God's kingdom. What a great thing then to be born into the fellowship, born into the family of God. Do you want to be included in that? Then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have the forgiveness of sins 
the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of everlasting life, which begins now and includes belonging to his family. And so you see then uh, something of the focus of the Lord's love. Uh, You see as well the inclusiveness of the Lord's love. And then finally, verse 7, you see the that the Lord's love is a satisfying love. Verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. They can't keep quiet, so they sing about it. They're celebrating it. They're declaring, all my springs are in you. Now, the, the spring coil had not been developed when this had been written. You understand that it's speaking of springs of water, right? A continual source of water. That's always fresh, never dank, never stagnant, not dead, but it's running, gushing, endless, streaming, living water, right? And this is their testimony. My resources are in you. My needs are supplied in you. My satisfaction is found in you, O Lord. And you understand that everybody is looking for that somewhere. Every one of us is drawing life from something, even right now. We have a spring we go to. Everybody goes to something. Some of us, it's it's physical beauty. We live on the prospect of being beautiful or more beautiful, or maintaining the beauty we think that we have, or having a full bank account, or social graces, or athletic ability, or activity academic achievement or career success or our hope of marrying somebody who will take care of us and make our life easier whatever it is we're all we're all living off of by nature in sinfulness we're all living off of false gods false saviors dry springs the bible would call them that god indicted his people You perhaps remember the language of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Try to find life in anything else, in anyone but God, and by God's mercy, you find those things never ultimately satisfied. They don't hold water. Sinclair Ferguson points out that centuries later, when the Feast of Booths was coming to an end in Jerusalem, on one occasion Jesus was there in John chapter 7. There was a traditional service. The priests and the singers would go to the pool of Siloam and draw water out of it and bring that water back into the temple and pour out that water around the altar in the temple. And they would chant the words of Isaiah 12 about drawing water from the wells of salvation. It's an easy chapter to look at, Isaiah 12. They did that every year as part of this ceremony in association with the Feast of Booths that spoke of the blessing of God and the rivers of grace that flow from God to his people. And John tells us, John chapter 7, that on the last day of that feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. So when Jesus is standing in Zion, when he dies in Zion, when he rises in Zion, from him flow the rivers of life so that we can say, Jesus, all my springs are in you. Is that your song? If you're a child of Zion, you know that song. You sing that song. Even in suffering, you believe that song. What a family to belong to. What privileges are ours in Christ. Have you been born into that family? By grace, do you belong to that family? Do you know the head of that family? If you do, rejoice in His saving love to you and then love His church. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gift of Your Son who loved us and gave himself for us to present us faultless in glory. Help us to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Grant that we would drink from it and never cease to drink. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.